So uh, last week we began our the prologue of John's Gospel. The prologue goes from verses 1 through 18, but we only covered the first 13 verses because of time. And uh, we saw the prologue is simply like a forward of a book. It, it, re, uh, it introduces you to themes that are going to be in the book. And uh, there are a lot of themes in those first few verses, and you can look them over, light, dark, grace, truth, things like that, that he's going to expand upon in the book. And verse 1 said, in the beginning was the Word. That means it was eternal with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. It had a relationship with God. And then it says the Word was God. Uh, now that's a very strange combination, but words are how we express ourselves. And God has expressed himself from the beginning of time. And he expressed himself through words. But this particular concept called word has personality because in verse 2 you see the pronoun he. This word is a he. He was in the beginning with God. So this word or this personality pre-existed. From before God said, let there be light, this word or this personality was with God. Uh, the personality has not been revealed yet in the foreword. Today we're going to pick up at verse 14. It says, and the word, this personality, became flesh, uh, became a human being, uh, like you and me. This eternal personality somehow became a human being and dwelt among us. And that's what the virgin birth is all about. This eternal second person of the Godhead took on human flesh through a virgin birth. It's a mystery that we cannot understand, but you, you're familiar with that concept. It says when he took on flesh, he dwelt among us. Literally, in the Greek it says he tabernacled among us, or he pitched his tent with us. In the Old Testament, God always lived in the tabernacle. In other words, God lives in heaven, but he also said that he wanted to have a presence on earth. And his presence was in a tabernacle and then in the temple. And now God's going to not only have a presence on earth, he's actually going to take on flesh on earth, become a human being. And God now tabernacles in this body. This is where he will live amongst us. He takes up a residence in the body of who we will discover is Jesus. And that's called the incarnation. That's verse 14. And then into verse 14 it says, And we beheld his glory. Uh, there was a visible uh, glory or radiance about this person. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. Uh, this eternal personality who became flesh had God's glory. And the writer says, and we saw this glory. Now this glory was veiled behind flesh, just like God's glory in the tabernacle was behind a curtain. And you couldn't see it. But what would happen if you opened up the curtain? The glory would have just poured out, wouldn't it? And the Bible says no one would have been able to even live in the presence of God. And, uh, and you know, the high priest could only go behind that curtain once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when he did, they 
they tied a rope around his waist. In case when he walked into the presence of God's glory in that tabernacle, he dropped dead, they'd be able to pull him out. No one else would have to go in. And so John says, God's glory tabernacled amongst us in a human being. And we beheld his glory. There was a couple times that glory broke through. And we got to see it. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? God's, Jesus was transfigured before them and they saw it. And that's what he's talking about. He calls this personality in verse 14 the only begotten of the Father. Uh, if he's begotten of the Father, that would mean in this case he's God's Son. And so he's unique. Notice he's the only begotten of the Father. There's something unique about this personality. So he says, We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father in verse 14. And then look at this. Full of grace and truth. Now, is there anything more than full? If something's full, is there anything more? No, there's nothing more than full. This personality was full of something. What was he full of? He was full of grace. Which in this case means loving kindness and compassion. He reflected God's personality, God's covenant love towards his people, totally, in a unique way. And it says at the end of verse 14, he was full of truth. Uh, he shed light on God's personality. <coughs> Jesus wasn't just truth, he was full of truth. If you want to know what God was really like, what God was... Jesus revealed God more than anybody else. He revealed God's plan more than anything else. And so this is a very important verse, verse 14. Now, beginning in verse 15, we're introduced to John the Baptist and the witness of John the Baptist. And look what it says in verse 15. John bore witness of him, and he cried, saying, This is he whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred, preferred before me. Now, Remember, John the Baptist came on the scene. He had a ministry. But he said, there's somebody coming after me. And he said, when he comes, my ministry is going to recede. He's going to be preferred over me. Why does he say he's going to be preferred over me? Because, look at verse 15. He was before me. He existed before I did. In fact, this personality existed in the beginning. John was born... Zacchaeus, or Zacharias and Elizabeth, wasn't he? Yeah, but this personality existed before John, so he's going to have preeminence, and his ministry is going to have preeminence beyond anything that John does, or who John is. He says, he's preferred before me because he was before me. And then, our writer interjects something. And here's what he says. Verse 16. And of his fullness, that would be the fullness of grace and truth, we've all received. We've all been a benefit of this full revelation of God through this person. Grace for grace or grace upon grace. This personality has given us grace without measure or without limit. This fullness, see in verse 16, and the, of his fullness we've received. So this personality, which has still not been identified so far, his name has not been mentioned yet, has it, in these first 16 verses. And it's not mentioned until you get to verse 17. Here's what he says. 
Well, let me read 16 again. And of his fullness, this personality's fullness, we've all received grace for grace or grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. Now this is very important. So he says, you know, we got a glimpse a little bit into what God was like when God gave Moses the law. We would know that God was a righteous God. You know? God was a God of, of certain attributes, and we could learn that from the law. God's a jealous God. We can learn that from the law. But the fullness, the full knowledge of God came through this person, Jesus Christ. And what could the law produce? Could the law produce life? Could the law give you eternal life? No. What could it give you? It give you death. Because <laughs> we can't keep the law. The law equals death. But look what he says in verse 17. But grace and truth, and that's God's covenant love, this grace that produces life, and truth that produces light, that came through Jesus Christ, and that's the first time this personality is identified. He waits, he waits 17 verses before he says who this word is, who this personality is. Now remember this, we know this gospel backwards and forwards, we've read it a hundred times probably, and this passage we may have read a thousand times prologue of John's Gospel. But when John wrote it and sent it to a church, they had never heard this Gospel before. And they weren't reading it themselves. It was being read to them out loud. So imagine you're a congregation and John's Gospel letter has been written and it's been delivered to your church and we all get together for a big church meeting and we say, we've got a message from John. And you say, oh! The Apostle John, yeah. And now, well, what's it say? Well, I don't say. The answer is not, well, everybody has a carbon copy on their table, just read it for yourself. That's not what happened, was it? They read it out loud. And so it starts off, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He has personality. And you don't, and you say to your neighbor, who's he talking? Well, you don't find out who he's talking about in verse 17. And they go, oh, Jesus. And what's that last word there? Jesus what? Christ. And we sort of think of it as his last name, but what is it? It's his title. And it means Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah has revealed God in his fullness. And he's given God's grace to us in his fullness. So this is the one we should be following. Not John the Baptist. Not Moses. We should give our attention to Jesus. He is the full light-bearer and the life-bearer on planet Earth. Now look at verse 18. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So, if I said to you, what's God like? And let's say I go to a foreign country that's never heard the gospel. And I said, what is God like? And the person would say, well, we know there's a great spirit or something up there. See, they wouldn't really know. 
There's no way you can know what God's like. You can figure some things out from looking at creation. You'd say, well, he must be powerful. There's trees here, and I know I didn't create them, you know. But you really wouldn't know what God was really like. But there's one person who's declared God to us in his fullness, and that person is Jesus Christ. He declares him because why? Because in the beginning, he was with God. And in the beginning, he was God. And he's taken on flesh. So he has declared God to us. That's what that means. The word declared is a very interesting word in Greek, and we're not going to go into what the actual word. Well, for Ulrich, I'll tell you what it means. The word is exegesis. And I teach a class in exegesis. And exegesis is how to interpret a text. Here it's, here, it's, here it's translated declared. He declared God to us. But really, he exegeted God to us. He explained to us what God was. He interpreted God to us. When we didn't know what God was like, he interpreted God to us. And when we look at Jesus, we can see what the Father's like. Because Jesus is the perfect word that expresses God's will and his person to us. Does that make sense? So Jesus is God in flesh, in a sense. So then what we have, again, in verse 19, is we actually now come into John the Baptist's message. And this is where it really gets interesting for me. What does John the Baptist have to say about Jesus? So look at verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. Here's what he has to say. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? This is what John has to say about Jesus. And he said this when a delegation came from Jerusalem to question John. They said, who are you? Now, who sent this delegation to John? It says the Jews. Do you see that? Well, John's Jewish. Why would it say the Jews? Whenever you see the phrase, the Jews, it always represents the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders in the city of Jerusalem, who are in cahoots with the Roman authorities. So when you see that phrase, the Jews, it doesn't mean every Jew, it just means the bad Jews. <laughs> the ones who have compromised the faith. And are holding the power strings of the Jewish people, but they're in cahoots with the Roman Empire. Notice who they sent. They sent the priests. That was the workers in the temple who offered sacrifices. They sent Levites. That was the priest assistants who helped in temple worship and even guarded the temple at times. They sent a delegation to John and asked this. Who are you? Now, there's going to be five questions, and this is question number one. Who are you? Okay, this is an investigation. Look at the answer, number one, verse 20. He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed. Well, I'll tell you first of all who I'm not. I am not the Messiah. Do you see that? And the I in the Greek is emphasized, so it's a strong enough. I'll tell you one thing. I'm not the Messiah. But that's who I'm not, okay? Now, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come. They were under Roman domination. And uh, there were rumors that God was going to send the Messiah who would deliver them from the Roman Empire. Uh, these rumors were developed from popular literature that was being written of the day. There were people writing letters and writing stories about a Messiah who was going to come. Not part of the Bible. Well, the Bible talks about a Messiah, but this was extra-biblical literature. Just like today, Left Behind series. Right? 
talking about the second coming. And guess what? People get excited that Jesus could come today. Based on what? Left behind. And that's what people were... Popular rumors and stories were going around the Messiah was going to come. And they believed that. And, of course, the Old Testament talks about that too. But there was a great expectation in that day. And so he says, well, first of all, let me tell you this. I'm not the Messiah. Okay, now look at question number two, verse 21. And they said, what then? Are you Elijah? Now in Malachi 4.5, it says that before the Messiah arrived, the prophet Elijah would show up. And there were rumors that Elijah was going to come. So they said, well, are you, are you Elijah? And look what he says. Here's answer number two. He said, I am not. I'm not Elijah. Okay? Now look at question number three in verse 21. Are you the prophet? There is also a theory that a prophet like unto Moses would show up. That's based on Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, God would send a prophet like unto me. And they were saying, well, is this, are you the prophet that's supposed to show up and speak for God? And what does he say? In verse 21. No. Each answer gets shorter. Did you notice? It's sort of interesting. No, not that. Okay, so then look what he says. Then they said, verse 22, question number four. They said to him, well, who are you? Can you see this? Can you feel a sense of exasperation? Well, who in the world are you? And they explained to him why they want to know this. Look what it says in 22. Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. Hey, we have to, we have to give a report back there. You know. Who do you say? What do you say about yourself? And so they are asking, this is an inquirer, they're asking these questions, and finally he gives an answer. Answer number four. He said, well, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And he just quotes Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And uh, this is how John the Baptist sees himself. He says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice saying, prepare the way for the Lord when he comes. And um, this was a concept that was familiar to everybody who heard it. When a king arrives into a... Let's put it in the United States term. When the President of the United States comes to Dallas, guess what? You have a big motorcade, don't you? That follows the king. But you have something that precedes the king. You have the Secret Service comes in. And they make sure the route that he's going to take is prepared. There's no big potholes. They're going to be taken care of. And they make sure that all the people who are very dangerous people are off the streets. They prepare the way for the President of the United States. And you can always tell when a dignitary is coming if you're riding down a highway and you look at the overhead bridges and there are cops on every overhead bridge. You know somebody important is going to be going down that highway. The way has to be prepared. John says, quoting Isaiah 40, he says, I am just a voice preparing the way for one who is going to come. So then look what happens in verse 24. We get the fifth question. They say this. Now those who were sent, that would be the priests and the Levites, were from the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees who were behind all this. Those who are the protectors of the faith. And they ask him, verse 25, saying, Why then do you baptize 
if you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. Here's the question. This is the big issue. What in the world are you doing out there baptizing people? If you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the Messiah, on what authority are you baptizing? Who gave you the right to get out here and baptize? You didn't get it from the Sanhedrin. Are you a self-ordained minister? See, they're trying to figure out this. Now the issue here, the big issue is, is baptism, isn't it? See in verse 24, 25? Why then do you baptize? See, that's the issue. The issue is this water, water ritual that John's performing that symbolizes spiritual cleansing. And that's what John's doing. He's baptizing people and he's telling them to cleanse themselves in preparation for one who's coming after him. And they're saying, well, who gave you the authority to do that? See, the Jews believed at the end of the age, when the Messiah came, he would cleanse people of their sins. Based on Ezekiel 36, remember that? He shall sprinkle you and cleanse you from your sins, and he'll pour out his spirit upon you. And uh, they're saying, we know the Messiah is supposed to cleanse us of our sins, but you're not the Messiah, are you? No. You're not Elijah? No. Prop? No. Then on what basis are you baptizing people? It seems like you're claiming the role of the Messiah. And so he answers. So look what he says in verse 25. So they say, well, why are you doing this? And look what he says in verse 26, actually. He answered them and said, I baptize with water. I'm, only, I'm baptizing, put it this way, I'm baptizing with water only. I'm not the Messiah who will baptize, will cleanse you of your sins, and also pour out the Spirit. I'm only baptizing with water. And he goes on to say in verse 26, But, by contrast, there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. Loose. So now what he says, look, I'm only baptizing with water, but guess what? There's somebody else coming after me. He's the one who's going to be baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And notice how he describes this person who's coming after him. He says in verse 27, He's preferred before me. Well, we saw that mentioned before, didn't we? And he said, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. Now, the only people who would loosen a person's sandal strap was a slave. That was the lowest job that a slave could do. He would take the shoe, literally take the shoes off the person's foot. These are not clean shoes, feet. You know, they were wearing these flip-flops. First century flip-flops. They didn't have socks. You know they didn't have bathtubs in their house? Do you know the average person in the first century would have to go to a public bathhouse to take a bath? They would just sponge themselves down at night. They didn't have bathrooms in their house. Poor people didn't have any of this. And so, 
people's feet were dirty because they got all filthy and it rained got filthy. He says, and the slaves would take the flip-flops off their masters and clean their feet. Look what he said. He said, I'm not even worthy to be a slave for this guy. So when they want to know who he is, he said, I'm Mr. Nobody. See, I'm less than a slave. But the guy who's coming after me, that's the one you need to know about. And he says, he's right here in our midst. Doesn't he say that? Where does he say that? Right in verse 26. There's one who stands among you. Evidently, John is right here. He's out there on the shores of the Jordan River baptizing. And in the crowd, Jesus is right in that crowd. Right in the midst there. And they don't know it. And John doesn't even know that Jesus is the Messiah yet, as you're going to see. But he says, I have a sense that somebody in our midst is the one who's coming after me. Okay? But as for me, I'm just Mr. Nobody. I'm less than a slave. And then look what he says in verse 28. These things were done in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptized. Now that's day number one in the life of John the Baptist's ministry that John's talking about here. Now look at verse 29, day number two. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I'm assuming that the delegation is still there, checking John out. But now we're faced with a dilemma. Notice he says, behold the what? It takes away what? The sin of the world. Now we're in a, we have a problem. Because we know from Leviticus, chapters 4 and 5, that on the Day of Atonement, lambs were not sacrificed know that? You always assume lambs are sacrificed for sin? Bulls, goats, sheep. No lambs are sacrificed for sin. So what in the world is going on? John got it wrong? No, because we do know that lambs were sacrificed not on the Day of Atonement for sin. However, a lamb was sacrificed on the Passover. Right? On the Passover. Now, when you think of the Passover, the Passover commemorates what? Commemorates Exodus, right? It commemorates being delivered from Pharaoh's Egypt. And you remember what happened on the night before the deliverance? Each Jewish family had to kill a lamb, shed its blood, paste its blood on the doorpost, and when the death angel came to take the firstborn, it would pass over the house of the Jewish people. John is saying Jesus is like the Passover lamb, who was slaughtered to deliver us from the world system. Just like Israel was delivered from Egypt, this oppressive world system. Jesus is a lamb that's going to be slaughtered and deliver us from a world system of oppression that is represented or symbolized by Rome. So this is Passover language. Okay? Now, notice also in verse 29, it doesn't say sins plural. You see that? It doesn't say sins plural, who says sacrifice for sin singular. 
The Passover lamb was died to deliver Israel from Egypt. But watch this. This isn't delivering Israel. Look what it says in verse 29. That takes away the sin of what? The world. The sin singular of the world. The sin of the world is a condition of the world. Not an individual act. Like lying, stealing, all that kind of stuff. The goal of Jesus as a lamb is to change the condition of the world. The whole world lives under sin. It's under a condition. And Jesus' role is to change the entire condition of the world and bring the entire world under the reign of Christ, not just Israel under the reign of Christ. And one day this whole world will come under the reign of God's government. And this world, as we know it, will pass away. And all the kings and kingdoms of this world who live under this condition called sin, that will pass away and this whole world will come under the reign of God's universal government called the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's how John is explaining Jesus' ministry and Jesus' sacrifice in these verses. Okay. And then look at verse 30. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. Because he was before me. He said that at least three times already, hasn't he? And then look at verse 31. I did not know him. I did not know him. I didn't know who the Messiah was. I didn't know it was this man or this man or that man. I did not know him. But that he should be revealed to Israel, I knew he would be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. My job was simply to prepare the way. And I started baptizing with water. And somehow John believed that his baptizing with water will reveal the Messiah to Israel. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he believes this is his responsibility. Okay, So keep on reading. Verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with what? The Holy Spirit. I don't know who, I don't have any idea who it's going to be, but God told me that as I'm baptizing, I'm going to baptize one guy, and when I baptize that one guy, guess what's going to happen? Suddenly the Holy Spirit's going to come upon him and abide with him and not leave him. And that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 11.1, 1, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. The Messiah, that God would pour out His Spirit on the Messiah. And John knew that he, when he does the baptizing through his ministry of baptism, God is going to reveal who the Messiah is. So John has no idea who it's going to be until the Spirit comes upon one of the people that he baptizes. Does that make sense? Then look at verse 34. And I have seen and I testify that this is Jesus is the Son of God. That's the one right there. 
And that's the testimony of John the Baptist. This is the witness for the testimony of John the Baptist. Now you'll see verses 35 through the rest of the chapter, verses 35 through 42, you'll have the witness of the first disciples. So you have the witness of John the Baptist, to whom Jesus is. Verses 35 through 42, you have the witness of other disciples, to whom Jesus is. And then verses 43 to the end of the chapter, you have the witness of Philip and Nathaniel, to whom Jesus is. Now, and that's what we're going to cover next week. Now, John has finally answered the question. Well, who are you? Who authorized you to baptize? He's finally answered the question. Where does he do that? Look at verse 33. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize did what? Said to me. Notice he was sent to baptize. Do you see that? Who gave you the right to baptize with water? You didn't, Sanhedrin didn't give you the right to baptize, but he says there's one who sent him. Do you see it? I did not know him, but he who sent me. I am sent. Who's he talking about? God. Yeah, see it's capital H in your Bible, isn't it? God sent him. No, I'm not, I do not represent the Sanhedrin, but I do represent God. And in doing, carrying out God's will and baptizing, the Holy Spirit came upon one person. It's Jesus, and this is the one. So, now when you look at this chapter so far, and you look at the titles of the Messiah, look what you get. Verse 1, he's called the Word, right? Verse 14, he's called the Only Begotten. He's also called the only begotten in verse 18, and he's also called the Son of God in verse 34. He's called Jesus in verse 17. He's called Christ or Messiah in verse 17, and he's called Messiah up there in verse 20. He's also called Lamb in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God, and he is called the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit in verses in verse 33. And that's what this book is about. This book is about the fact that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. Okay? They didn't even know who he was. He was the light that shined in the world, and they didn't see the light because they were blind. How many times does it say the world didn't know him here? Look at verse 33. John says, I didn't know him. You see that? You see that in verse 31? I didn't know him. Look at verse 31. I didn't know him. Look at the end of verse 26. You did not know him. You see that? Look at verse 10. He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. This whole book is about two things. He came into the world and the world received him not. They didn't know him. They were blinded. But to those who... Listen to the testimony, the preaching, the declaration of Jesus and the apostles and John the Baptist. They know him. They, their eyes are open. They get to see who he is. And on those who receive him, to those who believe on him, he pours out the Holy Spirit. So you'll have two groups of people. The Jewish people who do not know him and are opposed to Jesus and side with the Roman government, and come under the sin of the world, the oppression of the world, doing things the way the world does things. And you'll have another group who receive him and believe on him, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's what this 
what we're all about. So you'll end up seeing that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of what? So you're going to see that over and over again. At the end of the book, Jesus has his disciples together. He's been raised from the dead. And he says, he goes, he breathes on them. And he says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And that's what this book's about. It's about those who are unregenerate and those who are regenerate. Those who do not know Jesus and do not receive the Spirit and are under the condemnation of death. And those who believe on Jesus and receive the Spirit and have eternal life. They accept the grace and truth that Jesus has to offer. We'll pick up in verse 35 next week. Lord, we thank you for this chapter so far, what it means to us. We thank you, Lord, that we've heard the gospel in this class. We thank you that we know what the scripture says. We've received the light. We've received the truth. We've received the Spirit. And yet, even in the midst of us, Lord, maybe some haven't, their eyes haven't been opened yet, but I pray that through the course of this study, you'll open the eyes of every person in this classroom, that we may know who Jesus is, your representative, that we may receive him and believe him, and receive your Spirit, be born again, in your kingdom, in Christ's name.